The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 329 for Monday, May 9th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips. We do our best to answer your questions, share your tips, share our tips, and in general, all learn something about the Mac and Apple. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Hi, John. How are you? Fantastic. That's good. That's good. Uh, I'm trying to think if we have anything crazy to report, but I don't think we do. I think I think we have we have well I know what we have. What's crazy to report is the amount of questions that we got this week. So we're uh, we're almost certainly not going to get to all of them, but we're going to do our darndest here. Anything to uh, to mention before we head right into the all that good stuff, John? Well, we got something to mention. Should we leave it to the end? I mean, you know what? Oh yeah, leave that till the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good stuff. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Other than that, no. We're well. We're on a high pollen alert. Yeah. High, high tree pollen alert. <clears throat> yeah. Tell me about it. I, I, you know, allergies don't usually bother me, but if you're a regular listener to the show, you can probably tell I'm a little gravelly today. And that's the, uh, that's your high pollen there. But, uh, but we're going to do our best to ignore that at least as long as possible. I do, before we get into, uh, we've got a couple things about security, uh, a security question, and then actually a question about malware. But uh, before we get into that, I do want to talk about our first sponsor for the show, which is Barebones Software at barebones.com. And today we are talking about Yojimbo. Yojimbo is a piece of software that organizes everything else on your computer. And by everything else, what I mean are all those bits and pieces of information that don't otherwise have a home. You've got your, you know, iCal or BusyCal, your calendar holds your schedule and your to-dos. Your mail program holds all your email. But what about all these little snippets of information that you get? The, The little maybe serial numbers and, you know, little tech tips and maybe recipes and just all that general data that, Maybe is in different formats, maybe some of its text, maybe some of its pictures, maybe some of its PDFs, but you have no one place where you can pour it all together other than just stuffing it into a folder in your finder. And, eh, you know, that works OK, but it's certainly not going to help you. Well, that's where Yojimbo comes in. Yojimbo lets you pump all that information into one program, one place. And of course, you can create what they call collections, uh, which are just you know, folders of, of data. Of course, the same piece of data can actually be in two collections. So that's kind of cool. And I use it to manage all the uh, questions you folks send in and all the audio files and all that stuff that we use to, uh, to build the show. But, uh, and, and of course I store everything else in it and you can, you can do the same. It's available uh, in two places, barebones.com and also at the Mac app store. It's uh, 39 bucks, save a penny. And you can uh, and you can get it there. So barebones.com or uh, or the Mac App Store. And it is thirty nine bucks. If you are a student, you can get it from the website barebones.com for ten bucks less. Twenty nine dollars. So check that out. It uh, it, of course, comes as a free trial. So that's the first thing you want to do is try it out. See how you like it. And then once you're hooked, pull the trigger and off you go. 
That's from barebones.com. And with that, John, let's dive in and see what Patrick has to say. Patrick writes, I read an article on several websites uh, about how easy it is to change the admin password or really any user password on a Mac. All you have to do is boot into single user mode, holding down command S and then mount the drive uh, in read write mode where the instructions are right in single user mode. And after that, use the Unix PASSWD command to change the password for any user on the system. I have to say that I'm scared. I was a PC guy who switched to the Mac. Is that a bad move? What are your thoughts on this? Please respond. John? I'm going to start it off okay. with uh, maybe a philosophical thing, and then I'm going to get down to some facts. Okay. So philosophical, though, I'm going to add a caveat to it, but philosophically, if someone has physical access to your machine and they can even get it into single user mode, which you can really only do if you have access to the keyboard, right? Uh, then I would say you may have bigger problems than, well... That, that's, that's true, actually. At, at single user mode, you have more access to the data on that computer than you do even if you're booted up as an administrator. Yeah, so it's a mode that can come in handy for, for uh, a number of things, which you know we've touched on in the past. So that's kind of the bad news. But then here's the good news, Dave. What's that? Well, you, you may be asking yourself, well, is there a way I could prevent someone from activating single user mode on my Mac. And the good news is that there is really, how is that? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and it's in one of these wonderful Apple, uh, knowledge, knowledge base, base ar yeah. articles, HT 1352. And it's called setting up a firmware password, setting up firmware password protection in Mac OS 10. Right, right. Okay. And what this does. So this, in a nutshell, limits what one can do when they start up the machine. And fortunately, and there's a nice little checklist, so you know, I'm not going to read the entire article to you, but if you check out the article, among the things it will block is, and the item is right here, block the ability to start up a system in single user mode by pressing the command S key during startup. So, and there are a number of other things that block. So I'm not going to read them all, but you know, it can prevent starting up from optical disc, which that may be another oh. way someone could attack your system. Yep. It'll prevent diagnostics, target disc mode, a lot of things that you can use to, to trick the machine. Right. So, so I wrote back and that, that was my first answer is, you know, if, if you're concerned about this, then that, that is one thing that you want to do and that you should be able to do on any modern Mac and even back to the power PC Macs. That's right. Yeah. So that's one thing you can do. Now, however, uh, I'm, I'm going to repeat what I said, physical access. If somebody has physical access to your machine, well, if they can get in a single user mode, you know what they could probably do? They could just crack open your machine and take your hard drive. Well, now what are you going to do? Because then, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a firmware password because <laughs> it doesn't matter if you have any password. There's no firmware anymore. That's right. Because the person has your drive. And in that case, I would say in general, you lose. Well, on, Unless, uh, right? Unless, and this was the second thing that I mentioned to him. So if you don't take steps to encrypt the contents of your drive, then yes, you lose. This, the, the, this open firmware will not guard against it if someone rips the drive out of your machine. 
But there are a number of things you could do. Now, one is built into Mac OS X. It's somewhat limited, but it's File Vault. And that you find in System Preferences, Security, File Vault. And that will encrypt the contents of your home directory. So that's why I say it's limited. It doesn't encrypt everything. But there are a few other tools. So that's the one that Apple gives you for free. It's built in OS X. So if you're concerned about people stealing your data, then enable that by all means. Right. Uh, there are a few other options. One is something that I wrote about a little while ago called TrueCrypt. Now, TrueCrypt on the Mac does not work on boot volumes, but you may want to consider keeping your sensitive data on an external drive and then using TrueCrypt or the other product, which uh, I, I believe Pilot Pete uses. The- that's right. Is yeah, PGP whole disk encryption, which uh, which does the same thing as as TrueCrypt in that it, it compresses it or it, it encrypts a disk, but it will work on your boot disk. Uh, and that and and that you know with Pete, he travels a ton, and he's well aware that if someone gets his computer, they have his hard drive, you know, outside of that computer if they want it, and he has some data on there. He'd rather not get into anyone else's hands, you know, maybe personal, you know, checking accounts or, or banking data or anything like that. And so he encrypts his drive and he's, uh, he, you know, he feels safe with that. And, and he is safe with that because the way, the way these things encrypt, it's not just the, the password. Isn't the lock that opens the door. It is the key to being able to decrypt the data. So, you you can't even begin to decrypt the data without the password. It is integral to the way it is encrypted. So it's good stuff. Yeah. Right. John? The, okay, yeah. the only potential downside of any of these solutions is that there may be a performance hit while it's doing the encrypting and decrypting, but right. That's right. I'd say you got to weigh performance versus the security of your data. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, as we, as we were going through this question and as you were answering your part, I wrote something down here to, to remember to say it. And it, I wrote convenience versus safety. And, and this is true with, with just about any time you're worried about safety or security or anything, be it, be it your computer or your house or your car or whatever. You know, is it more convenient for me to leave my car door unlocked and my key inside the car? Yes. Is that safe? No. Well, it, you know, in a general sense, yeah, it is. I mean, I haven't ever had it cause me a problem, but if someone were to get to my car, uh, then they could get in and, and take off. Right. I mean, it, there's nothing stopping them other than perhaps, you know, their morals or, or, or someone yelling at them. But, you know, the same is true with your computer. How many hoops do you want to force uh, a would be, you know, attacker to jump through? And those are the same hoops you need to jump through. Right. You know, the answers going in, of course. Uh, and hopefully you're, you know, the, the person trying to break into the computer doesn't, but it does require, you know, you to, to do that. The same with your iPhone. If you put a passcode lock on it, makes it more secure, makes it less convenient. So it's convenience versus security. That's exactly. the way I look at it. Yeah. All right. Kevin sent us a question about uh, something that we saw pop up in the last week here. Very, very interesting how this has uh well, we'll let Kevin start us out. Hey, Mac Geeks, uh, John, Dave, and Pilot Pete. How's it going? It's Kevin uh, here from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, a uh, longtime listener of the show. And I have something for the not-so-cool-things-found category. Uh, 
<laughs> um, I work at a local uh, computer tech shop, and uh, I might mention that part of my inspiration for that has been listening to the show over the years. So that's anyways, awesome. Thanks for that. But uh, so I had a Mac come in with uh, with uh, malware on it, um, which I Google searched, and it seems pretty legitimately malware. It's called Mac Defender. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, but it's basically one of those, you know, pretending to be an antivirus protect you program that wants your visa number to pay them. And, uh, yeah, so not cool. Um, so my question is, what do you guys recommend for, uh, removing this sort of thing? I know we see this on windows all the time and we, we have a lot of tools for scanning and, and removing, you know, anything in the registry and whatever that might be infected. But in OS 10, I'm not so sure when I started thinking about it, you know, what, what this program might get into. Um, actually I found a cool article on Mac fix it that, that kind of talks about how to remove it, but um, I could link to that, but I wanted to see what you guys thought, you know. Um, I was thinking of using, like, a, an app application deletion program, and, like, the one I use is App Cleaner, um, something like that. But I'm worried that when somebody writes software that's that's bad, that what else it might be doing that we don't know about. So, you know, of course we can check Activity Monitor and run Onyx and and, uh, you know, maybe checking the console and stuff like that. But I wanted to see if you guys had some more ideas as to how to get rid of this thing, um, short of doing, like, a whole OS in uh, reinstall, which is, at this point, actually what I'm kind of recommending for the client, just to make sure. Um, but, yeah, so not so not so cool stuff found here. Mac, it's called Mac Defender Malware, and it's, it's all over the web if you Google search it. Yep, yep. All right, thanks, Kevin. Uh so, yeah, I did hear about this and essentially from and I didn't get it. Uh, so I, I can't speak firsthand. But from from what I understand, John, uh, this is a it's something that we came up when when people were browsing images in Google image search and it would automatically download. It would start sending you a, um, uh, a you know, this this file that that then launched a a an application and it did this using Safari's uh, open safe files uh, command or, or, or setting, which I guess is under, if you go into Safari preferences general, there is a checkbox at the bottom that says open safe files after downloading. And so it was this, I believe it was a disc image that it was opening up. And then the disc image kind of had a, a graphic in it that, that said, you need to install me because you have this, uh, this virus or something along those lines. So, um, it's an interesting type of attack. Uh, you know, it's not a virus, right, John? I mean, this is, I think malware is the right term to use. Yeah. I, yeah. To me, a virus is something that propagates w without any user intervention mm. over network. And then some people may shake their fist saying that, uh, but that's how I would classify a virus versus malware, which to me is something where the user has to take some action. Yep usually through trickery, which is what's happening here to, uh, to, to install it. And I think, yeah, what happens is what appears to be a legitimate Mac OS 10 installer comes up saying, Oh, hi, I'm inst And you know, it sounds like something good, right? Uh, uh, to me though, the first thing you should think about is wait a second. I didn't ask for this to happen. Right. And that, to me, that would be the first piece of advice. I, I think, uh, what he's asking is uh, by that point, I think it's too late though. The, maybe we could entertain that, but I would say the, you know, the absolute first thing 
is if you all of a sudden see an installer start running and you did not explicitly download something, I would add to it from a trusted site. You know, I would say Mac update, you know, is, is one, but if, if you didn't instigate this, then don't go any further quit. So, so, uh, be, be careful. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my first reaction. If all of a sudden I saw something saying Mac Defender start to install itself or ask for my permission, I'd be like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's right. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, and, and there's an article, I guess it was the nextweb.com that, that was the first place I saw this news. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, you get, they say to look in library startup items and then library launch agents and library launch demons for references to the app and pull them out of there. I have no doubt that, uh, you know, Intego and Symantec are going to be right there and saying that this is the reason we need to all have uh, antivirus and anti-malware software on our Macs. I'm still not running anything on mine. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is not just being cavalier and, and uh, saying, ah, you know, there's, there's, there's never any problems with the Mac. And, and this really is the first one of these that we've ever seen in the wild, to my knowledge. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, we've certainly seen people create them in the lab, but I believe this is the first one we've seen in the wild. And it does, it did give me pause. It was like, Oh no, do I have to start running virus protection software? And and the problem is with that stuff. I have to, after having used it on windows and, and help people with it on windows is by definition, virus protection software gets in your way. It, it, at the very least, it has to scan every app and every document that you are going to open. Right. And so that slows things down. It has to slow things down. Right. If you say I open that file and the first thing that happens is you've got some software running in memory that says, Oh, let me see that first. Okay. Yeah, that's good. You're good to go. You know, they can make it as efficient as they want. It's still going to slow you down. And, and so that's, that's kind of my, my big problem with it is machines not running virus protection software just runs so much faster. Now, of course, if you live in a world like the windows world, where if you don't run any of this, you're doomed and your machine's going to slow down because you're going to have all sorts of spyware and everything. Well, then, you know, you've got to pick the, the lesser of two evils. And at that point it's virus protection software. But I, you know, I, this isn't enough to make me start running it, but it is enough to remind me and, and perhaps remind all of you uh, just what John said, you know, question anything that seems to pop up uh, out of the ordinary. Google it, you know, that, that if something seems out of, out of place, send it up to Google. See what uh, see what the rest of the world's saying. Chances are somebody else is is seeing the same thing or has seen it if it's legit. And if it's not, you might you know you might get the same deal. Hey, how about you, John? You going to install virus no. software? No, no, because I've had the same experience with you. Is yes, they by their nature have to get rather intimate with the file system, and they have to, as you said, get in your way, right? And uh, I remember, I, I don't remember the exact name, but it was one of the shows that I went to recently and they came out with a, a new Mac uh, spy, whatever, uh, antivirus or so they claim. They said, oh, well, it's free. You know, there's no problem. Try it out. Right. You know, I went home that night, downloaded it, tried it out. Crash. <laughs> that, well, that's that's even worse. Wow. And it was a newly released product. And like, yeah, you know, there's no harm in using it. Just, you know, just run it and see what you think. And I'm like, OK, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'll dig around and see if I can find it, but they, it may not even be around anymore. But again, by its nature, and and you know, apparently they, they didn't test it thoroughly because it, uh, I couldn't even run it the first time. It didn't even it wasn't even able to get its job done. So, so for now, I'm with you. Um, but be 
Vigilant. Yeah. Vigilant, you mean? Or vigilant. Yeah. Vigilant? Vigilant. I'm not sure what vigilant means. <laughs> that I'm pretty sure it's like being vigilant and diligent at the same time. <laughs> vigilant. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> uh Okay, you know, I was perusing the Mac Geek Gab forums over there on TMO this week, and I found I came across Lee, who asked, uh, "Is it possible to turn off the automatic running of rules on incoming mail and mail app?" I would like to have all of my incoming mail remain in my inbox until I hit the keystroke for apply rules to file it away in another mailbox. Right now I can do automatic filing with rules, but the rules are applied upon receipt. So I never see those messages in my inbox and I don't want to have to hunt for them among my many mailboxes. If I want to see a message in my inbox, then I can't have it moved by a rule and I have to file it manually, which is a lot of dragging and the time adds up. If I could make rules for the majority of my list contacts, etc., but apply them only manually, then I'd be able to run through my inbox much more quickly, filing anything that I don't have to deal with and leaving anything that needs my attention. The documentation that I found says that rules run automatically on incoming messages, and I don't see a way to turn that off. It seems like there should be a switch somewhere, but I don't see it. it you know, when you put it that way, Lee, it, it makes sense. There, there should be a switch somewhere, but there's not. Uh, and and I, I am. I have a similar issue uh, where, you know, there's messages I want to see and then I, I just want to file them quickly. And mail's rules, of course, don't let you turn them off. So the way I do this is I use a piece of software called Mail Acton and, uh, and it's from indev.ca and uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, of course. What this does is it lets you assign keystrokes to specific rules or even rule sets in mail. And so you can have these rules all defined and the, or these actions all defined, I guess. And actually they can be rules because it, it can, it can do things conditionally. So, so it really, it really allows you to manually trigger any single rule or group of rules, uh, depending on how you configure it. And it works out really, really well. If I have something I need to file to, you know, our geek cab folder, I hit uh, control G and boom, it, uh, it, it sends that off to my geek cab folder. And if any of you out there thought of the system bell, when I said control control G, that's cool because that's uh, <laughs> back to our Apple two days and, and actually just, just uh, antsy stuff. Right. But uh, anyway, it, it's your, it's the answer for, for you here. And, and it's one of those things that, you know, I install it immediately upon setting up my Mac and, and I forget it's there. I forget that it's an add on because it's so handy. Uh, I just use it constantly. It, it, I don't have to move my hand off the keyboard. If I'm just scrolling through messages, I'm not dragging with the mouse and trying to, you know, find where to put the thing. It just, boom, it goes right where I want it to go. There's no mistakes and it works great. So mail act on your answer there. And do you use mail act on John? Have no. you tried that one yet? No, huh? No, the only add on I use is a uh, spam sieve. Oh Yeah. And it requires you to set up a rule. And actually it, it, it likes to be one of the first rules. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause otherwise it can't do its thing efficiently. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I want to talk about our second sponsor for this show, John, which is a returning sponsor to geek Cap, to Mac geek Cap, Uh, and that is gazelle.com. I love gazelle because it's one of those websites where I can actually lose a lot of time and think that I'm going to make money. And, and then actually I, I do, uh, Gazelle will buy 
your and recycle uh, your old electronics that you're no longer using that old, you know, iBook that you've got the old MacBook Pro, the old iPhone, the old iPods, all that stuff and more old different kinds of cell phones and stuff. It, it's fantastic. And it saves you the trouble of having to, you know, put it on eBay and sell it. Visit gazelle.com and just start typing in stuff. It, you know, there's no, there's no reason that you don't have to agree. Uh, you just type in stuff and, you know, start looking and they'll tell you, they ask you some questions. They'll say, okay, you know, this, uh, this iPod or iPhone that you're going to sell, does it work? Yes. Does it have water damage? No. You know, does it come with the power connector or not? You know, and you answer all these questions and then it asks what kind of condition it's in. And that's subjective. It certainly in, and of course the dollar amount that they'll give you for it is higher based on higher condition, but here's how it works. You agree and you say, okay, yep. I've given you all this criteria and I think it's in, you know, superb condition or good condition. And, uh, and they'll say, okay, here's your price. And then they send you a box and you send your iPhone to them. It hasn't cost you anything and it gets there. And let's say they decide, oh, you know, this isn't superb. It's, it's only good or it's not good. It's fair. Uh, and they'll, they'll send you an email with an updated quote. At that point, your decision is to either take the new quote or if you don't like that number, just tell them to send it back and you're still out nothing. So uh, it, it's a cool service. They've been around for about five years. They were founded in 2006 and they say they've had uh, over 175,000 customers so far. I've uh, I've sold some stuff through them. I think. Did you sell some when when they were sponsors the the the, the last time around? Did you sell anything through them too, John? When we were talking about it, or no? Hmm. I, no, thought, I, I, thought I had did, something, but, but they they at the at the point I, I looked at them, they were not. Uh, I think it was an old DVD drive. At okay. That point they they were not accepting DVD drives. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, but they can maybe, maybe they are now. I don't yeah, know. they'll pay you by check, uh, Amazon or Walmart gift cards, or even PayPal. Uh, and they say that you get a 5% bonus if you do an Amazon gift card. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And again, it's just a fun website. I, I go there sometimes, even if I don't think I'm going to sell anything, I just go there to check and see, you know, if I, if I wanted to get rid of my MacBook pro really easily without having to, you know, put it on eBay or mention on the show or anything, you know, what, what could I get for it tomorrow without any work at all? You know, and then they'll just, the number's right there. It's awesome. It's great. So Gazelle.com, and we appreciate uh, their sponsorship, and we're glad to have them back. Moving on to Jeff, John. Jeff has uh, has an interesting question. Jeff writes, I can hear an internal disc spin down, and after a few seconds, spin back up, and after a few minutes again, cycle through the process. I've tried various configurations of system preferences without success. I've gone into energy saver. I've tried sharing. I've eliminated startup items, scripts, timed events, etc., all without a change in behavior. The entire system seems to function okay for now, but I'm thinking that this is causing excessive and unnecessary wear and tear and disaster may loom in my future. I do have a backup system that works and is active. Uh, I have a Mac Pro. It's a Mac Pro dual core with six gigs of RAM and a 500 gig hard drive in Bay One as my system disk. Uh, and I'm currently running Snow Leopard 10.6.7. I then have three additional 500 gig hard drives in Bays 2, 3, and 4. Is there a console log or any built in reporting system or third party utility that tracks this kind of disk behavior? And John, I think you have a, a good starting point for us. I have an answer. So. 
So one, I think where he's looking is in energy saver, there's a checkbox saying, put the hard disk to sleep on possible. So we're going to assume that he unchecked that. Okay. The drive is still making a racket. I had this happen when I upgraded the hard drive in my MacBook Pro. And it was, it it started bugging me. It it really got to my OCD in that (laughs) I would be sitting there, you know, sometimes, you know, I'd be, you know, in bed, you know, using a laptop and I hear this little chunk, 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 chunk very silent, but it should have been silent. The drive should have been silent. Right. And there was nothing wrong with the drive, right? It was, it was just doing what it was supposed to do. Well, the prior drive didn't do it. So I think because even though it was a class of drive, it it was basically a larger version of the same class of drive that the machine originally came with. I think because it was different. um, And I'll tell you what I found. So I I looked on this problem. I certainly was not the only one that was being aggravated by uh, what I think basically was the drive parking the head and then unparking it or spinning up and spinning down. I think, I think it was parking the head, but it was some sort of power management. And what I found was a utility. Oh, so a a power management, not controlled by the system, but built into the drive's own electronics. Right. Okay. Because what I found is a program called HDAPM. I'm going to guess HD is for hard drive and APM, maybe advanced power management. That would have been my guess but it's a small little command line utility that lets you, but, but this is a parameter, which I do not believe OS 10 sets normally. I think it just lets the drive do whatever it's, it's set up to do. Okay. Which in, if the drive by default is set for aggressive power management, then you may, and, and it sounds like that's what's happening uh, in this case. So what this lets you do, it, so it's a command line utility. You have to install a small plist file in one of your directories to run it. And it runs it on startup. And what I do is uh, send a parameter saying uh, set to maximum performance. In other words, do not do any power saving. So although it may be somewhat wasteful, it prevents the drive from doing doing the hustle or whatever the drive is doing, doing doing this power management tango that creates this racket. So I'm going to suspect, so as long as it's an ATA drive, Okay. Uh, an ADA or SATA drive, then yeah. this should work because it appears to be a, a, a somewhat standard uh, command among uh, ATA and SATA hard drives. That makes so sense. Okay. That, yeah. that would be my suggestion. So yeah, it, again, it's going to waste a little energy, but it will not make a racket. Cause I, I, I would agree that, you know, the more physical activity uh, could make the drive wear, wear out quicker. Yeah. Yeah, Are you, you, you with me on that? I, I am with you. Yeah, you know, that whole spin down, spin up thing, it, it's definitely causing, you know, extra wear and tear in there. I, I think so, for sure. Uh, you know, is it causing enough to break it? Well, do you want to find out? Uh, especially if it's if it's like you were describing, John, or, or like Jeff describes, where it's spinning down and spinning right back up again. Clearly, the drive is trying to, you know, do its best to anticipate when it won't be needed, but sounds like it's needed right away and so it has to spin right back up and that's not helping anybody if it could be off for you know five minutes ten minutes or or longer but then yeah absolutely spin it down but but otherwise you know that's crazy that's my feeling moving on to uh to james james has oh yeah that's a good one okay so James writes, at my work, we use a VPN client that has to be run 32-bit mode on my Mac in order for it to work. As I'm sure you're well aware, the latest MacBook Pros with the, come with the OS booting into the 64-bit kernel as the default. And they do. That's true. 
Uh, so we have to run a command in the terminal in order to force the Mac into 32-bit mode permanently. How does this affect the performance of the machine? That is booting into 32-bit mode versus 64-bit. I've been told that it mostly doesn't and that any programs uh, that can run in 64-bit mode will still do so. Also, how does this affect memory over four gigabytes? Please help me understand the difference between the two modes as I'm very confused. John? I'll kick things off here. Now, I can understand how you could be confused because... It is confusing. Yeah. Because this 32-bit versus 64-bit thing is present in multiple parts of the system, and he touches on them. So let's go through, let's go through them, and let's start at the beginning okay. with the kernel. Okay. So when he's mentioning a 32-bit kernel versus a 64-bit kernel, this is one portion of the system which could be either or. And as he's indicating, and, and, and specifically what he's talking about is kernel extensions. There are some kernel extensions. Well, all of them are 32-bit as far as I know. At least, you know, the ones that come with the OS. And then as the OS started becoming more 64-bit friendly, including a 64-bit kernel, yep. what software vendors would have to do, or hardware vendors, because some of this is for, as he's pointing out, it may not be just to operate a piece of hardware, it may be to operate a piece of software, like a VPN program. So the problem is, as he's found, is that they have not gotten around to writing a 64-bit ver version of the kernel extension. I actually have a similar thing, the, uh, the, the little clear uh, uh, adapter that I have. The particular one that I have, their connection manager software, does not run under the 64-bit kernel. So I have to boot into the 32-bit kernel to use that device. I don't know if you ran into oh. that with, the, with your clear device or not. Or well, if you no, boot into 64-bit, because I boot into 64-bit on my MacBook Pro. Uh, I, I do boot into 64-bit on my MacBook Pro. Or at least I did. I had set it that way. I don't know if 10.6.7 reverted me back to the default or, or not when I did that update. But I, I did set it to do that. But the clear device that I use um, is a, a standalone hotspot, so it does not require oh. drivers. It just attaches via Wi-Fi. Okay, whereas, yeah, this one plugs in via the USB port. Right, right. So, um uh, so one thing, now I offered him one suggestion, and then I'll, I'll, point, I'll answer the performance question. So one thing is that he may want to use the startup mode selector that we've mentioned in the past rather than uh, fiddling in the terminal, which you could certainly do if you, if, if you don't mind being in the terminal. But uh, I like the startup mode selector. Plus the page that you can get it from also goes into a bit more detail about this whole mess. To answer his question about performance, um, so he says that he received information saying that there's no difference in performance between the 32-bit and 64-bit kernel. Right. Uh, the answer is you may get better performance. I, that's, that's what I understood, too, that depending on how an application or the OS needs to manage memory, it might be faster with 64-bit. Is that, is, that, is that right? Well, I did find a benchmark. Okay. So it was a MacPerformanceGuide.com, and it was a group that benchmarked some OS X software. And in several cases, when they ran the same software under the 64-bit kernel, yep, uh, they saw a uh, the times to accomplish certain tasks were smaller. So, well, that's good. I mean, it, you know, it, it's good that there there is a, yet more efficiency tweaks that we can get out of these machines. That's a that's a good thing. So what else? Uh, so let me see. So he was asking about the kernel. 
the performance, so he he'll get better performance under sixty four bit. He may can can he still address RAM over four gigabytes was one of his questions, and and I I, I was going to say I believe, but I also know that answer to be yes. Uh, even if you're booting with a thirty two bit kernel, which cannot all on its own address more than four gigs, uh, the system will see more than four gigs of RAM without without any trouble. And this is where where it gets very confusing. It's like well. You know, what, what is Apple? What are they doing? Why is this? Uh, and it, 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 you know, it's just it's a it, it's a migration path. Right. Uh, as far as I understand, 10.7 will be all 64 bit, which is why they've now kind of flipped from booting 32 bit kernels on the new machines to 64 bit kernels. But, uh, it, you know, it, it uh, hopefully will, um, you know, like again, allow allow app developers to address RAM in better ways and more efficient ways. And, and we can see software run faster and faster and faster. You know, I can understand why you would think that something that's 32 bit is limited to four gigs. Cause I'm going to give you one guess. If you took two and raised it to the 32nd power, Dave, then you get four gigabytes. Exactly. Right. Now the good news is that, and you and I have seen this all the way going back to the Apple IIe. And that the physical address space, so the number of bits that the processor can address oh. at once. So this is another oh, little... This is a great way to explain it. Keep going. Because you just made it that much simpler. Because I always understood this on the Apple IIs. And, and I, for whatever reason, never applied that same logic here. So keep going. This is good. Because I think it's similar. So they call it something different. So, so in the Apple II, they called it page flipping. What they call it on the Intel processor is physical address extension, P-A-E. Oh, I don't think this is a given. I think this is something that the operating system has to support, but the processor can support it. Okay. Because if you look back at, and, and I, I found a page that described this phenomenon, there are certainly 32-bit operating systems that can see, and, and as you pointed out, yeah, I mean, it's not just the Mac, Windows, a right. lot of flavors of Windows, if this feature is implemented, then they can see a total of more than four gigabytes. Now that leads to the question, well, can they see more than four gigabytes at once? And I think the answer to that is no. That's right. For a 32-bit system, and let's, so I don't get in trouble here. Let's, let's not get too, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> too specific about a 32, but as, as, as we indicated, two to the 32nd is four gigabytes. Right. Right. But if you use something like PAE or page flipping or whatever, you can effectively see a total of more than four gigabytes. Though I would still say maybe you cannot see more than four gigabytes at once. And I don't know if you'd necessarily need to. Right. Well, you, you might, I mean, depends on what you're doing. If you're moving, you know, Lots of data around for image manipulation or something like that. You might. Yeah, to me, the whole thing is at once. And the other thing is yeah. virtual memory accomplishes this as well. Right. You know, virtual memory gives you a, a, a memory space that is, is much larger than four gigabytes or, right. or has the potential to. Right. So. Cool. I think, I think we yeah. addressed this. No, that's good. I, I didn't. I, I hadn't ever heard about that. That PAE before. That's that's very interesting. And it is. It was supported initially. Uh, in the Pentium Pro back in 1995 and has been in every Intel chip since then. Of course, Apple uses Intel chips. So the chip supports it. And Mac OS 10, starting with 10.4.4, uh, supports it. So, you know, it 
unless you're running 10.4.3 or 10.3 on your Mac, uh, you can see more than four gigabytes of physical RAM pretty much regardless of, of what type of processor you have, as long as it's Intel. I'm going to take an educated guess here, which yeah. get me, this could get me into trouble, but I think the EFI is also, I think if you have a 32 bit EFI, then that may complicate things though. You may still be able to get away with it. The thing is I don't have a 32 bit, 32 bit EFI system at my disposal. I do. So I, could, I couldn't. Oh, you do. Yeah. I believe the machine we're podcasting on the iMac. I think it's the iMac seven comma one is what this, uh, this model shows okay. up as in system. How much profile. RAM there? How much uh, I've got six gigs of Ram. Well, that answers that. Right. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Wow. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. All right. Um, moving to Tyrone. Tyrone has a good question. He wrote, as long as I can pull up his email here. I currently have a 2007 17-inch MacBook Pro. I just ordered the new 27-inch iMac i7 with the 2 gigabyte video card, and I should have it next week. From what I understand, Migration Assistant is the best way to transfer all of my data settings and applications. Is there anything uh, in preparation that I should do before the migration or anything that I can do to make the process run smoothly? And then he also wrote and asked, should I, when I do my migration, should I do it from my MacBook Pro in Firewire target disk mode or should I do it as uh, from my time machine backup? So you want to start with this one, John? Yeah, we'll we'll hit it back and forth. Okay. So my uh, my advice was as follows. Is as follows. Thank you. Though it was and is. That's right. It is. <laughs> it, it, it it your advice defies time. <laughs> timeless. Okay. It is timeless. That's right. Here's the absolute first thing I would do before you migrate. Make sure that the drive you're migrating from doesn't have any problems. And I would say at the very least, you want to run a permission repair on that and you want to do a disc repair. Yeah. Uh, use the Apple utility or if you have something a little beefier, because if there's something wrong with the disc, uh, it could at, at the very least propagate the problem at the very worst could bring the whole process crashing down and destroy everything. Right. <laughs> right. That's true. No, it, so. that, that's true. You're going to, you're going to be accessing a lot of files uh, in a lot of places that you might not regularly touch and making sure the directory and, and file system is in good shape before you do that. It, that's a, that's a wise move. I never thought about that before, John. I like that. That's, that's a, that's yeah. a good thing to do. I did it especially. Yeah. When I, when I helped my mom migrate from her, Motorola machine yep. to a new Intel based portable. Yep. Cause then I was like, Oh man, cause there, here's the potential for disaster. Right. 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 And to further guard against disaster, my suggestion would be make a full backup of the original drive. Again, if everything comes crashing down, you could lose everything. Not right. saying it'll happen. It, it, it's never happened to me, but it could. Yep. So make a full backup, stash it away. Drives are relatively cheap. And, uh, you know, once you're convinced that everything's brought over, then you can use that drive for something else. But I would do a full backup. And then the final thing that I'll offer is find the fastest interface. I think I did make mis this mistake once. I think when I got my MacBook, I would not do this. I, I believe you can do this using your wireless interface. Oh, yeah. If you're going if you're going over uh, if you're coming from a backup like your time machine backup. That's right. right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bad. Bad. Bad idea. Bad idea. 
the yeah. current fastest interface on the two machines that he's talking about, the, the two, the fastest common interface would be because I think the, one of the machines he's getting has Thunderbolt, right. but the fastest common interface I believe would be gigabit ethernet. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, uh, but of course you can't do gigabit ethernet in target disc mode. Um, no, but you can use migration assistant will support two machines connected by ethernet. Oh, that's true. That I know well, that. that. Yeah, that's that, what I. Well, that's what I did for my my when I did my mom's setup. The thing is, one machine supported gigabit, the other I believe only supported hundred base T. Okay. So it was, but Ethernet was the fastest common interface. And so, it, it, you just attach to it over the network. I've never done that before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It just, I think, yeah, you hooked them up, and I think at some point on one machine it said, "Hey, you know, here's a magic number. Type it in on the other machine, so you could do uh, some it. sort of verification." Yep. Yeah. So, and you didn't need a cross, you know, like the battle days, so the, you, it, it would use a normal ethernet cable oh, that, to the, establish a connection between the two the, machines. The reason for that. So what John's referring to here is uh, ethernet uses four wires uh, in the way that it, there are eight wires in the cable, four pairs. Uh, ethernet only uses two of those pairs and one pair is for sending and one pair is for receiving data. If you are plugging two computers into each other, you've plugged send into send and receive into receive, and they won't even see that there's something on the other end. Unless the computers are smart enough. And I believe for the last, not all Macs, but certainly, certainly since Intel, and I think before that, uh, Macs Ethernet ports are, are what they call auto sensing or auto crossover ports. Right, so, right. so if they see that you've essentially plugged two computers into each other, uh, one of the ports will flip and, and then everything works just fine. Normally, of course, Ethernet devices are plugged into a switch or a hub and the hub automatically is backwards because it knows that that's how it has to work because it's expecting those those devices on the other end. So uh, so, yeah, you can just plug an Ethernet cable between two Macs and and. I'm sure thousands of people have done this without even thinking about the fact that it should not work were it not for auto crossover ports. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's good. You know, that, that was a pain in the neck. I used to always have to carry what was called the crossover cable, which did exactly mm -hmm. what you think it does. It swaps those ports and uh, or swaps those those pairs. And I, I had yeah. to, I remember I had to build one in the field once because we needed to do it. It was pain. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. And we're not even going to go back to null modem adapters and all. That stuff. Oh, yeah. That's uh, good now, stuff, now, though. Can we? No. Uh, now to his last question though, what, what's your preference, Dave? Uh, um, I would do it. I, well, you know, I would, I would combine your advice w with the, uh, the speed. So if, if your fastest connection method is to, you know, if somehow you could do SATA connection, right. Although I guess you can't do SATA target disk mode. Right. So that's not going to work. Um, so yeah, it, it, it probably wouldn't matter. I mean, you're going to do it over whatever the fastest drive is. And if you're going from a MacBook Pro, my guess is that your time machine backup is going to be your fastest because laptop drives, unless you've done something about this, are notoriously the slowest hard drive you'll ever work with. Um, so I, I would go from your time machine backup just because of speed. Oh, you know, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. 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 Because you're, you, yeah, the, the, the drive in the. So the drive in the time machine, assuming. Yeah, I don't know what you're using for your time machine drive, but unless you got some, you know, portable, you know, USB bus powered, yeah. you know, slow as molasses hard drive, uh, it's going to be faster than whatever's in your laptop. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, unless your laptop one. has an SSD and then, you know, go, go with that. Yeah. 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 
Okay. That's my feeling. Cause you're, you're going to be moving lots and lots of little files over, which means the drive is going to have to do a ton of seeking around. So yeah, the, 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 the faster the drive, the better. So that's my, that's my advice there. You know, while we're, while we're on this one, John, uh, Eddie had a, uh, an interesting question about the, you know, those new IMAX, I'm real close to buying one and making that my main machine and, and, and basically decommissioning my MacBook pro. So, uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. I, I'm, I'm a little scared to, to not have a laptop as my main machine, but not really. Cause we can sync so much now. IMAP and Dropbox and all that stuff. All my, all my stuff is everywhere. So that's what I'm thinking. All right. But anyway, Eddie asks, Hey, John and Dave, it's Eddie in Tacoma. I had just a quick question about the new IMAX and the Thunderbolt bus. I was wondering, uh, I haven't been able to find anything. If we're going to be able to boot from that bus from an external drive, uh, when they become available, which I'm hoping will be relatively quickly. Uh, I was just thinking maybe down the road, that might be a nice ability to be able to add an external SSD at reasonable speeds. Anyway, Thanks for the show. And this is where you cut me off. You got it. Uh, so, right. Uh, you, you made an important point there that we don't have uh, Thunderbolt drives or cables yet. But once we do, yeah, you'll be able to boot from those. Uh, no question about it. On on both the IMAX that are out now and the MacBook Pros that uh, that that uh, just came out with with the Thunderbolt. Uh, everyone that I've that I've talked to that knows uh, how all this stuff works has, has confirmed. Yeah, it's going to work just fine. So, uh, you know, but that, that Thunderbolt bus is an interesting thing, John. I, and I know, I know we talked a little bit, a little bit about it when we first heard about the MacBook pros that have it, but, uh, but I like it. It's, you know, it, it's like having the ability to plug a card into a computer that doesn't have card slots because you're, you're, you're plugging straight into the bus and that's a good thing. Essentially straight into the bus. I realize it's, you know, yeah, well, it's, yeah. it's what we should have had years ago. Yeah, oh, it, it took this long. It really, <laughs> it's true. Well, we sort of had it with the Express Card 34 slot, right? In the uh, in the MacBook Pros that we have, that was that was the closest thing that we've had to that. And and in fact, that <clears throat> slot, if you have one of those machines, you can put a SATA card in it and uh, and make it go faster than the SATA bus internal to your computer if you want. So. Well, I think it's more that they're combining uh, kind of like they went from DVI to HDMI. Right. It's like, oh, gee, what a, what, a, what a great idea to combine video and audio, because if you're consuming one, you're probably consuming the other. Right. Right. In this case now, it's like, gee, now that now we can combine, uh, combine display audio and peripherals all in one bus. Yeah. Just like we used to do when we built our computers from scratch. Right. I mean, it, you mm-hmm. know, right with our. I mean, even with a, with a Mac pro, you do that, right? You have a video card, you have, you know, all that stuff is there. You just plug it in. Um, but certainly we did that with our Apple twos and, and anybody that ever built a windows machine, it was the same way. So stay in the present day. <laughs> That's right. I thought we were supposed to be timeless. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, we have a couple of questions about uh, waking up network computers, but first I want to tell you about our third sponsor for the show. It is a new sponsor, John, and it's cool because it actually helps you listen to the show. It is Stitcher uh, available. Well, it's available a couple different ways. You can certainly go to Stitcher.com. And if you do, you want to go to Stitcher.com slash MGG. And I'll tell you why. Uh, But really, it's that MGG you want to remember. Stitcher is an app for basically any uh, mobile device. They support, of course, iOS, both 
iPhone, iPod, and iPad, uh, and then Android and, and, and other platforms as well. So uh, the cool, what it does is it allows you to listen on the fly to podcasts. And of course you can subscri- subscribe and mark favorites and all that stuff, but there's no syncing. There's no downloading. You just boom, press the button and it's streaming. And I tried it with, with, of course with Mac geek Up, and it, works just like I said, it works. Uh, what they're doing though, is they want you to try this out. Uh, and that's of course why they're sponsoring the show, but they're sweetening the pot for you. And that, and, and that pot is sweetened with an iPad too. So they're going to give away an iPad too this month uh, for, uh, for one person that registers with the code MGG. One other thing happens when you, so you, you download the app and it's free from the app store. You download the app, uh, on your onto your iOS device, and then you have to sign up. You're going to put your email address, and you got to create a password so that you can log in on multiple devices. When you do that, there is an option to enter a promo code. Enter MGG there, uh, and then that will do two things. As I said, it'll register you for this iPad two drawing, but it also will mark Mac Geekab as a favorite show and put it in your list automatically. So you don't have to seek us out. We'll automatically be there. So it's something you would want to do anyway, and they save you the step. So. Uh, you can check this out again. You could go to stitcher.com slash MGG and that'll actually let you enter your email address, which sends you an email that tells you to go and do everything I just told you to do. But, uh, but it's a nice handy set of instructions. Uh, but, uh, but you can just download it straight to your iOS device and, uh, and go from there. And that's, it's stitcher uh, again at stitcher.com slash MGG. So this is going to be cool. We'll be talking about this quite a bit. And, uh, and there's some other cool things that they're doing too, that will, that we'll tell you about in the future, but for now, just go download it and use MGG as your, uh, as your code and you'll get us and entered into the drawing. Have you tried out Stitcher yet, John? Uh, the first I saw was, uh, no, I have not. Okay. All right. And I'm going to assume I'm not eligible for the, uh, no, iPad. no, you and I are not eligible. Darn. That's oh. right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that's good because it means that, uh, you know, there's that many more or that many less, uh, slots in the pool from which, uh, from which everyone needs to compete. Okay. But yeah. I'll certainly look at it for consumption of Mac geek. Yeah, it's cool. I've, you know, the, the one thing I really like about it is how easy it is to go through and just select which shows are my favorites. I, I can do it right from search list. I just tap the little star and it fills up my favorites, but it doesn't download anything. It doesn't fill up the device. I just hit play and, and it plays it. It works the way you'd want it to work. So, all right. Uh, let's go to David here. And David has a question. He says, I have an older Intel Core Duo iMac. I finally got ISSH to work on my iPad. But when the iMac goes to sleep, it will not wake from sleep, even though I have that option set. Okay, so this gets very interesting. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. If you go into system preferences and go into energy saver, you can tell it to put the computer to sleep and you can also say uh, wake for network access. Now, this is a little misleading because what it infers, at least to me on reading this without knowing any better, is that the computer's going to wake up anytime somebody wants to uh, access it over the network. And that, you know, that sounds like what uh, what David wants to do. That's what it says. Right. That's what it says. That's not true. Sort of. And and hold on to that sort of because we're going to explain that in a little bit. What this means is 
wake up when someone sends me a magic packet. And that's not my term. That is the network term uh, on, uh, I believe, UDP port nine, I think, uh, to the broadcast address of my network and puts my Mac address in it. So even when your computer is, yes, I know that's very confusing. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, but it is, it is something that you have to go out of your way to send across any network. It's not going to just wake up when you say, Hey, knock, knock, knock. I want access. You have to say, wake up then knock, knock. I want access. So it's, it's a two-step process. Uh, and so when your computer is asleep, the ethernet port is actually sitting there watching and waiting and listening for this magic packet to come floating across the network. And then it, uh, and then it'll, and then it'll, you know, start the process of waking the computer up. So in order to get ISSH to wake up your computer or, or to connect to a sleeping computer, you need to wake it up by sending it one of these magic packets. And I don't, I, you know, I haven't honestly looked, I don't know that there is an app for the uh, iOS that will wake up uh, sleeping devices. There might be, uh, but I haven't looked. I don't know if you've looked, John, for that, or maybe you, maybe you can, maybe you can search while I'm explaining here. Uh, there is a service available from uh, a site called DSL Reports. If you go to dslreports.com/wakeup, uh, that will allow you to wake up a computer, and it actually does it remotely. But you've got to set up your router to forward uh, that port nine to address two five five on your network, which is the broadcast address. And there's we can put instructions in the show notes and we will for uh, for how to do all this. And DSL reports explains it pretty well, but it is a convoluted process. However, and I told you, hold on to that that thought before, because Apple in their goal to make everything simply just work has figured out a way to make this just work. And so if you have an Apple router on your network, uh, that is either an airport extreme or a time capsule, those devices do something a little bit sneaky and it doesn't have to be your main router. It can just be sitting on the network. Mine works for me, even though my time machine or time capsule is, uh, is sitting up in bridge mode. Uh, as long as it's on the network, it works. It sits and anytime a computer comes online and says, I'm, I'm making these services available and, and, you know, remote access is one of them. File sharing is another printer sharing. The airport router says, okay, I'll, 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 I'll make note of that. And then when the computer goes to sleep, it essentially hands that off to the airport router before it goes to sleep. And the airport router keeps broadcasting kind of masquerading as that computer saying, yes, this service is available on the network. And when it sees a request come for a service that's on a sleeping computer, guess what it does? It sends out that magic packet and does all the work for you. So as long as you have an Apple router, a newer Apple router on your network, this all works exactly like you would think it would when you check that box. But it take away that Apple router and you're on your own. You've got to go do all the hard work yourself. So. That's that's the the not so simple answer to what should have been a simple question, but sometimes it's just not simple. Do you, do you ever do anything with this, John? You probably do and might not even realize it, or maybe you did realize it. Wake on land. Yeah. Well, I did when I had my my machines. When it was a Mac world, I I was using uh, back back to my Mac. Right. And I was connecting to my brand new Mac Mini. So yes, I I've done this. Cool. Cool. Yeah. 
Now I did find you, you said, you know, while you were, uh, pontificating yes to uh <laughs> no it was well, good. i did find something it's called inet wol okay is a iDevice app from banana glue love these company names yeah uh <laughs> which says inet wol is a wake-up tool for computer connected i okay english is not their first language computer connected by an ethernet cable to a local network or the internet and it's in the app store so okay so it looks like somebody's somebody's written there's at least one i app yeah I can call it iApp, right? Yeah, there's sure. at least one iApp that uh, that looks to uh, to uh, embrace this functionality. Yeah, so. two bucks. So, all right, that's cool. That's good. But you might not even need it if you have an Apple router. Uh, chances are, if you wrote us that email, David, it it means you don't, or maybe it's not set up in in the right way. Um, but it just it really there's not there's not a whole lot of wrong ways to do it unless you have it creating its own subnet. But if you've if it's not your main router. Uh, put it in bridge mode and, and that will work. I can, uh, I can attest to that directly. Uh, all right. You know, we have another question from, uh, from Brent and Brent writes, I have a mid 2007 MacBook pro running 1067. I would like to use VNC to remote access into my MacBook pro from my iPhone. I have achieved this over Wi-Fi and 3g using Mocha VNC light. The issue is that I would like to sleep my MacBook Pro when not in use. However, my MacBook Pro seems too old to support the Apple wake on wireless feature in Snow Leopard. Is there any other alternative to wake my MacBook Pro over Wi-Fi remotely? Okay, Uh, so Brent talks about something interesting. And in my example before, I talked about waking up a computer uh, over the Ethernet port and the Ethernet port sits and listens. Well, uh, I think about. Two years ago, Apple started releasing MacBooks and MacBook Pros that had the ability to be woken up over their wireless network link, too. And it works the same way. It's just in this case, the wireless antenna is sitting there kind of watching and waiting and, and, and all that good stuff. Unfortunately, and, and I am one of these people, so I can, uh, I can attest to this. There is no workaround for this if you don't have a machine that had that from the factory. I, I don't know of any way of, of having it wake up wirelessly uh, unless you could do some Bluetooth thing, but they would require some jury rigging, I think, but you, you might be able to do it with Bluetooth, you know, set up a device that, uh, that acts as a mouse click or something, but, but you'd have, I mean, you're, I don't think there's going to be any, uh, I don't think anybody's done this yet. So it would require some, some, you, you need a soldering iron and X code to make this work, but, but you could right with, with Bluetooth. <laughs> As long as you're within range. That, uh, that's my feeling uh, on that. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. right. It could be fun. Weekend project. But to summarize, it's, it's definitely a function of the network adapter. If it's not right. the network adapter, then right. there's no way around it. That's, it, right. that, that's the first, first device that has to have the capability. That's right. That's right. Uh, all right. So we have, uh, we have a couple things from 328 to go through. Uh, the, our last show, we talked about batch renaming files and uh we got uh, a couple of emails mark uh was the first one to send in and say that graphic converter will actually do this if you go to file convert and modify under the function drop down is the rename option to navigate to and locate files and and you change one of the panels and away it goes so uh he says that uh, the graphic converter can do that brandon wrote and said that a piece of software called name changer by MRR software uh, 
does this. He said, name changer helps you rename a list of files quickly and easily, and you can see the changes as you type. So, uh, and it can change names based on different criteria and all that good stuff. So one of those two might be a, a, a nice little simple solution to, uh, to the renaming issue we talked in, talked about in 328. So thank you very much to everyone, including Mark and Brandon, but certainly not just Mark and Brandon for sending that in. Time for cool stuff found, John, before we, uh, before we blast out of here for the day. Cool. Cool. <laughs> uh, James writes, I face the issue of wired versus wireless access on the road. And I make sure they, ha- I, and I make sure that I have the ability to connect to either. When I travel, I have occasional issues with Apple's inconsistencies and in interface here and there. One is how ridiculously hard it is to play all podcasts sequentially on a nano, but that's another show and the inability to access the airport express via a web interface or at least an iOS app. Though, as you all duly pointed out in the last podcast, you can set it ahead of time at home. There are occasions where this is insufficient for the occasion or simply doesn't work. The airport extreme simply doesn't give enough information to the user. All it took for me was one blinking yellow light on the road to consider other options. I chose the ingenious travel router for 50 bucks. You get a full featured N router, which is roughly the same size as the airport express with a fully accessible web interface for half the price of the AE. You can accommodate all your routery needs. It doesn't share my iTunes library, but you know, I really never use that feature on the road anyway. So there you go. The, uh, the, Ingenious travel router. It's fifty bucks. We'll send a we'll send a link in, into the show notes there, John. Good, right? Awesome. All right, Robert. See, right. One, oh, go ahead. Go, go, go. Well, I'm just saying that's you know that's one thing. Apple couldn't they put a an app a little checkbox saying you know enable port eighty access or web access to to play yeah, but nice, then they'd have like, to build that up. interface and support it. Yeah, I know. I, they, the only people that make us do this with software. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. Well, it just makes it proprietary. That's the other yeah. you know, thing that's kind of kind of a downer. Yeah. 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 Those routers are, are clearly not intended to be used with anything other than Macs. Well, don't don't they make a Windows? Yeah. Of I, the utility. Or they no? do. They do. But I thought they did. Yeah. yeah. Still, it's a, yeah, you shouldn't need a piece of. No. Yeah. Like uh, almost every other one on the planet. Yeah. You can access it through a web, web interface. Yeah. 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 My guess is they'll change that at some point. They have to. They have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert writes, I found this amazing wide angle magnetic lens for the iPhone. You stick a small metal ring to the iPhone and then the lens just magnetically snaps on. It also works as a macro lens. The ring covers the iPhone flash, but that's easily fixed with two snaps of a wire cutter. It's from photojojo.com and, uh, you know, I meant to pop up the price, but I'll find it now. It's uh, 40 bucks for both the fisheye and wide fisheye wide angle and macro lens because uh, you can turn one around. Hmm. Yeah. And either one is like 25 bucks. So, yeah, it's cool. I, you know, I could I could see that being somewhat valuable, especially hmm. for, you know, 20 bucks, 25 bucks. Any, John, you have a cool stuff found item to uh, to throw in this week. I do go. So just finished up an article today and I needed to do some visual HTML editing. Okay. And I won't go into the gory details, but I needed to. And, yeah. you know, for some things I'm, I'm cool with BB edit. It's great for doing HTML editing. If you know the tags, in this case, sure. what I had to do was some table work. 
and I didn't want to learn the HTML tags to do a table. So I'm like, oh man, you know, so I had the original HTML of the table that I wanted to change, but I, again, I didn't want to learn the tags. So I went looking around for inexpensive, AKA free, right? <laughs> visual HTML editor. And I found one. Actually, I found the updated version of one that I had found in the past. And it's called Composer. Okay. Uh, spelled K-O-M-P-O-Z-E-R. Because that's a cool way to spell it. Yeah, and maybe it avoids getting lost in the, uh, in the <laughs> shuffle. And I think it, uh, it has some uh, open source uh, roots here. Okay. But it's free. You can certainly download. Oh, I was uh, power, powered by Mozilla. So I think it has uh, ah. some Mozilla components. But it does what it says. So I took my HTML, pasted it into this, then switched it to visual mode. It showed me the table. And then I was able to highlight a column and then resize. It showed me a little thing showing how many pixels wide a column was. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Oh, wow. Fix that. Then I think it allowed me to do centering of some of the content, then move over to another column. And then once I was done, I went back to the HTML view, copied the, all the HTML and pasted it into our uh, publishing system to... Uh, yeah. Wrap up a review that I just published today uh, for, for a hard drive. So that was great because I didn't, I didn't, uh, although I could, I didn't really didn't want to review my uh, HTML table codes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's smart. Cause it's easy to forget to do things like setting the border to zero and, and then you wind up with a table that looks like a four-year-old made it, you know, and it's got all these big thick borders yeah. and yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. the options, the options, uh, I did a quick search online to look for visual editors. And the problem is most of them are pretty high end packages. Right. And they cost money. Right. And, you know, right. I needed something quick, dirty and free. Perfect. Well, <laughs> well I think I will toss them a few bucks because it, it, it got me out of a fix and I was able to publish quickly. Yeah, it's a, it looks to be open source, but they, yeah, they, they do accept donations. So that's a uh, that's a beautiful thing. All right. right. Uh, something new, Dave. Can yeah, I talk about good. our new thing? Yeah, if you want to contact us, there is a new option, and that is... And there's a new, new option. So oh. thanks to people that jumped on this. So we now have a Facebook page, and thanks... So we just published the news today on the Mac Geek Gab Twitter feed, and by the time the show rolled around, Dave, we had enough people to give us our own page. So if you want to go to our Facebook page, it's at facebook.com slash... Hey, that's easy to remember. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to have a certain number of, of people that like you or fans, yep. and they, they just piled on the site and gave us the, the requisite number so we could get that. You, you can't, yeah, normally you can't do that. You need enough people. So thank you all the people that like the page. And awesome. we already have a few wall posts, and uh, you and I, Dave, will figure out what, what to put on the site. Yeah. We'll keep it, it we'll keep it up to date for you. That's for sure. And we'll and we'll certainly post when new shows are out. And probably you know it'll be a good place for us to put some pictures and and things like that too. So uh, you know you can you can go and and like it and subscribe and all that good stuff. Uh, you can also send us an email if you want to feedback at macgeekgab.com. I believe Dave that you said feedback. At MacGeekGab.com. That's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You can, you can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which is... 4335. That's right. Uh, and you can uh, you can Skype us to MacGeekGab. And, John, you mentioned Twitter. So on Twitter, you are John F. Braun. I am Dave Hamilton. 
The show is Mac Geek Gab. Pete is Pilot Pete. And Mac Observer is Mac Observer. All Twitter.com slash all that stuff. So check us out there. Twitter's a fun place, too. It's uh, it's a great way for us all to stay in touch with each other, and we like that. Yeah. I'm usually hanging there. You, you yeah. are, too. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. Great show. Formerly the iPhone Alley podcast, and he does a great job over there. He also converts this to AAC for us and for you. Cashfly provides all the bandwidth for cashfly.com. The podcast marketplace includes the A5 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro from Smile, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and Stitcher with the coupon code or promo code MGG or stitcher.com slash MGG. All through Backbeat Media. And that brings us to the end of this show. We'll be back on Thursday for Mac Geek Cab 330 premium show. And then back on Monday for 331 here in the uh, standard, standard feed. Got anything to add, John? I'm poop. Well, 